Let's start this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've got something that's been stirring around in my heart for the last several days that I want to share with you, and you believe with me that I'll be able to get it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is uh, writing to the church about the return of the Lord Jesus. And he says uh, something that's, uh, to me, very instructive and interesting. Beginning in verse 51, he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, what's a mystery? A mystery is something that's hidden. Well, if Paul is going to show us, then it's not going to be hidden. So what does he mean, I show you a mystery? He's saying, I'm going to show you something that's hidden from the world. The mysteries of God are meant for us to be understood, not to wonder about not to travel around and walking and stumbling in the dark. The Bible talks about mysteries in the body of Christ and in the church, in the family of God. But those are things that we're supposed to understand. Well, there's only one way to understand them, and that's by the direction of the Spirit of God through the Word. So Paul is going to reveal something that's very clear and very plain that's intended to be known and understood by you and me. So he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, sleep, he's talking about is uh, referring to physical death. We shall not all die physically, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. Now, folks, trumpet does not mean trumpet. Like the way that the word is translated here does not mean what you and I think of as trumpet. He's not talking about a musical instrument. Trump or trumpet in the, in the scripture is talking about a loud voice or a shout. So Jesus' return, which, is this, which this is referring to, will be preceded not by the sound of a musical instrument, but by a shout from heaven. And folks, I think that's also instructive or uh, illustrative for us. In this sense, God doesn't do anything apart from or without his word first. So there's something that's going to be shouted from heaven. I don't believe it's just a loud noise. I believe it's the word of God spoken. Maybe it's, maybe it's God calling from heaven saying, come up. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a shout from heaven. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. He talks about two things taking place when Jesus comes back. Those that have preceded us in the body of Christ, those that that have died physically, our loved ones that have gone on to be with the Lord, their bodies that have been buried in here in the earth shall be raised up just before we're caught up into heaven, reunited with the Spirit's that inhabited those bodies, our loved ones, that are now present with the Lord in the, in the presence of God. They'll be reunited with their bodies, and in the same moment, we'll be caught up into heaven and our bodies will be changed. Jesus is coming again. Now, how many of you grew up in the church? As kids or something like that, young people, you grew up in the church. If if that's your situation, if that if that's your experience, you're going to be like me. You've been hearing this forever. And there's a problem with that because the more and more and more and more and more you hear about stuff, the less and less effect it has on you unless you really focus in on it. So to many people, I know to, to me as a young young person, the first time I heard about the rapture, it was like, wow, Jesus is coming back. But after you hear about it for, for week after week and month after month and year after year, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is coming back. It just doesn't have the same impact. You, you stop looking for it. But folks, I want you to understand, Jesus is coming back. 
Now I want you to turn with me over to first. Uh, um, turn with me over to First Thessalonians. I think it's chapter four. No, it's chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. Paul said, writing about these things. Well, let's start in chapter four. We'll get the last couple of verses in chapter four. Beginning in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, he said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Paul talks about physical death, and remember he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about physical death as being asleep. He does not, and, and never does he speak of death, physical death, in the sense that we think of as being the end of existence. Death for the Christian, and I'm talking about physical death for the Christian, is just a change of location. You don't stop existing. Paul said when he was caught up into heaven, he didn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. Well, if his spirit was caught up into heaven and he couldn't tell whether he's in the body or out of the body, what do you think about people who have departed? Their spirits have departed and they've left their bodies here on the earth. Do you think they know they're without a body? They would have no way to think so. They would certainly recognize they're in a different place. A place that's far better, Paul said, than anything you, you and I could ever experience here on the earth. But we, we, put, we here on the earth put such a different importance on the physical body than Paul or the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul to write, uh, refers to. When your, body leaves your, when your spirit leaves your body and your body is left here on the earth, whether it's through physical death or, or being caught up into heaven or changed in the rapture or whatever the case is, when your spirit gains ascendancy over your body, you're not going to feel any different than you do now. One of the things that Paul goes on to write later in this uh, fifth chapter to the Thessalonians is he prays that their whole body, uh, uh, their spirit, soul, and body would be sanctified. He prays that their spirits would be so, uh, I'm sorry, that their bodies would be so dedicated and separated unto the Lord that at the time of the rapture they won't even know anything happened. Now, that may be an exaggeration. I, I, I have a hard time thinking that we wouldn't know something happened. But that we wouldn't recognize the difference because our bodies are already subjected to our spirits. Well, anyway, Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as those which have no hope. Now, he didn't say don't be sorrowful. He said don't be sad like people that don't have hope. In other words, there's a different sorrow when you know somebody is gone on, passed from this life into eternity without Jesus as opposed to somebody that you know is in the presence of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the trump of God. The shout is the trump. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But now notice chapter 5. He says the same things. Goes into a little bit more detail. Says the same things to the Thessalonians that he said to the Corinthians. The Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So God wants you to understand this mystery. It may be hidden to the world. It may seem foolish to the world, even if they've heard us talk about it. But he wants you to know. 
But of the times and the seasons, brethren, this is chapter 5, verse 1. Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now stop and think about that. He's saying to people that he's revealed the mystery to by the Holy Ghost. He's saying to people, you don't need to know anything from me that you don't already know, that you haven't already heard about the times and the seasons. That means he's made this a focus of emphasis. He's made this a point of emphasis for them to understand what they should look for concerning Jesus' return. Well, do we know those things? He goes on to say in verse 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so so cometh as a thief in the the night. Now, the day of the Lord is spoken about in a couple of different contexts, but in this context, he's talking about Jesus returning for the church, what's commonly known as the rapture. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. When the world is looking for global peace, when the world has some kind of sense of global security, That's when Jesus is coming, according to the Holy Ghost. I would think he would know. Interestingly enough, peace and safety is almost identically the the logo or the tagline of the United Nations. Theirs is peace and security. Is there a connection there? Well, it might be. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that 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 day should overtake you as a thief. Now, please notice he's talking about the difference in the church's attitude toward the rapture and and the world being taken unaware. He's saying the church shouldn't be surprised by this. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night and of darkness, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. In other words, he's saying, you should know enough about the return of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. You should know enough to keep your eyes open, to be in prayer, to be watchful, to be alert, so that none of these things take you by surprise. Now, nobody knows the day or the hour, but nowhere does the Bible say the church won't know the time or the season. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, there are two things that I want to talk to you about this morning real briefly concerning the return of the Lord and the signs of the times, if you will. There are a lot of things that we could talk about, a lot of things that uh, uh, would be helpful if that were the purpose of our study, but it's not. This morning, I just kind of want to hit the high spots on a couple of things. Jesus is talking in the 21st chapter of Luke about his return talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D., and, and, uh, and even the, the return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation when he comes in glory, rather than uh, referred to as the rapture. And he says something. Notice he concludes this uh, discourse in verse 36. He says, Watch ye therefore and pray always. Well, isn't that the same thing Paul just said? Watch and be sober. He said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. This word escape comes from the root word to vanish or to disappear. Now notice he did not say watch and pray that you will escape. He said watch and pray that you be counted worthy to escape. 
if Jesus is only going to rapture those that are in watch, that are watching and are in prayer, I think that's too small a crowd for him to come for. Just my opinion. But he says, watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. To escape all these things that shall come on, come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, two things I want to speak to you about real quickly this morning. One is, notice verse 29. He spake to them a parable. In talking about the end and talking about his return and, and the end times and so forth, he spake to them a parable. Now, a parable is something that stands for something else, that represents something else. Parables are usually prefaced with saying a certain thing, the kingdom of God is like a certain thing. In other words, one thing stands for another. So he's saying that something that he's about to say stands for another. So he says, he spake to them in a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. What, do the, what does the fig tree and the other trees represent? The nations of the world, Israel and the nations of the world. In other words, the Bible tells us that we can tell the times and the seasons by looking at the nations of the world. Looking at the nations of the world. Now turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's talk about the nations of the world for a minute and just what the Bible says about it. Ezekiel chapter 38, the Bible tells us uh, that, there are some, that there's a time, a day and an hour that we're not going to know, and that's the rapture. But the Bible also tells us very specifically that the tribulation is a seven-year period of time. Some people look at the verses of Scripture that, uh, that talk about the end of the, the uh, tribulation and say, well, see, the Bible says nobody's going to know that. Well, it's easy to know when the end of the tribulation is. All you have to know is when the tribulation starts and count by seven years. Well, we know what starts the tribulation. The first thing that happens in the tribulation, and a lot of times, and I grew up thinking this, I thought that the rapture began the tribulation period. But nowhere does the Bible say that. It's possible that it will. It's possible that the, that the church will be raptured one day and the, that very same day the tribulation can begin. There's nothing in the Bible that says it can't happen that way. But there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to. It's possible that there's a period of time between the catching away of the church, the rapture of the church, and the tribulation starting. Now, you wouldn't think that would be a long period of time because the Bible says that the, that the church is the only thing here on the earth holding things together. So if the church is gone, the earth's not going to last long without us, according to what the Scripture says. But it could be that way. We can't be hard and fast about saying it has to be this way or the other way or, or whatever. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is this. We know that the first event that the Bible talks about in, uh, during the tribulation period or what, what I would term as the beginning of the tribulation period is a world war. Now, world war does not mean the whole world is at war any more than World War II meant the whole world was at war. But it encompasses a great deal of the nations of the earth, just like World War II did. Well, what are those nations of the earth? Ezekiel chapter 38, beginning verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog. That's the leader of Russia. The land of Magog, that's the land of Russia. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them. 
Now, these are boundaries that were in the day of Ezekiel, not the boundaries of the, of the, uh, the map of the world today. So Meshach and Tubal has to do with Turkey. It has to do with some of the Arabian co- uh, countries and so forth. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O God, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Then it tells a a list of the other nations with, with Russia. Persia, that's Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of his bands, that's probably East German East Germany and Poland and, and Hungary and some of those uh, European nations. The house of Tagarma of the north quarters and all of his bands and many people with him. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. Now the Bible goes on to tell in the, verse, in the uh, next number of verses throughout the 38th and the 39th chapter, it says that God defends Israel in one day. In other words, this world war that begins the tribulation period lasts one day. And God destroys them. What does it tell us if we're supposed to look at Israel and the fig tree as the fig tree and the other trees as the other nations of the earth? What are we supposed to know? Well, the one thing that's clear about this is that Israel stands alone. The one thing that you can say definitively out of Ezekiel 37 or 38 and 39 is that Israel is by themselves. Folks, I would submit to you that there's never been a time more than today than Israel has been by themselves. I don't care who claims to be their ally. There's nobody acting like it. America is the chief culprit there. Notice also the things that are going around us. If you look at these uh, nations in the, the map of the world as it existed or as they think it existed, there's no definitive map. Nobody created a world map in Ezekiel's time. But as... Uh, the best scholarly evidence can provide for us the map that we believe was the case in Ezekiel's time. All of these nations or territories encompass nations today that are, that are uh, by and large, have one thing in common. That's they are uh, governed by or influenced by Islam. So what does that tell us? That tells us, number one, Israel should stand alone. Number two, it's going to tell us that Islam is going to rise in a way that, it, that uh, certainly wasn't the case when I was a young man. And look at the rise of Islam in the world. You see some of this Syrian um, refugee situation. It's creating and spreading Islam throughout the world. That may not be the end of this, folks. It may be more and more. This Iran nuclear deal that somebody came up with is a good idea is just insane. It's absolutely insane. Now, Paul said of the times, signs in the times, you need nobody tell you. We need to be aware of the things that are going on around us. The politicians and the world leaders that are standing up and saying that they're okay with this Iran nuclear deal is just mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. But that's another thing about the signs of the times is you've got uh, people that are governing against the will of the nation. Look at all the things that have happened just in the last several years that are against the will of the people. It's almost like somebody's pulling strings behind the curtain. Well, who do you think that somebody is? It's the devil. 
It's the devil. See, God knew all these things were going to happen. And God's not sitting in heaven and moving things around like a chessboard to make them happen. God just looked down the road of time and said, this is the way it's going to be. He saw the work of the devil. He saw the Iran nuclear deal before Obama ever came up with it. And I believe that has a lot to do with this. It talks about the weapons after God defeats these armies in one, uh, in one 24-hour period, one day. It talks about these weapons burning for seven years. Could very well be nuclear weapons. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to think that God would step in and provide or prevent these things from happening and keep uh, a nuclear strike from taking place and so forth. But there is no way for us to legitimately conclude that God would have man withhold the greatest and most powerful weapons of his time and then God win. And instead, God lets man do the worst that he can do and then he shows himself even greater than that. So it's very possible that that's going to be the case. Very possible. The things that are going on around us, those two things particularly, the weaponizing of these Muslim countries and the rise of Islam itself are two of the greatest signs that we have of Jesus coming back. And that may not be the end of it. I mean, we may look at this and say, well, the Iran deal, nothing could get worse than that. There's a lot of things that could get worse than that. This Iran nuclear deal could create an arms race, a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Every one of these countries could wind up with nuclear weapons. And it just escalate from there. Jesus is coming back. Now there's something else that I want to talk to you about. And really this is more important to me than uh, more in my heart uh, than, uh, than the first point. And that is the state or the condition of the church. The Bible tells us that one of the signs of Jesus' return is this condition of the church. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Let's start there. Now, Jesus is not at this point in time in Matthew 7. He's not talking about his return. He's not talking about the end. It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which was at the beginning of his ministry. But he does say in verse 15, Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Stop and think about what Jesus is saying and what his purpose is for saying it. Is Jesus saying, now look out, because as soon as I go down the road to Capernaum, there are going to be false prophets that come behind me. Or is he saying, Beware of false prophets in a general way, knowing that he's only going to be here on the earth for a short period of time. And that after that, the devil is going to try to, to uh, destroy the work of the church and the planning of the church. I think it's the second one. I don't think Jesus is warning them against false prophets while he's here. I think he's warning them against false prophets that come afterwards. That's certainly borne out by the, the, the New Testament letters. There are more warnings and more... Um, well, more scriptures that warn us about false teachers and false prophets and false apostles and so forth than any other thing that the, that the New Testament writers wrote about. He warns you more against false prophets and false teachers and false, prophets, uh, false apostles, Paul does, than he does against the devil because he knows how the devil works. So when Jesus says, beware of false prophets, he's talking about 
certainly in a general sense, to apply in his day, but to apply in our day. I think he's really looking forward more to our day when he says these things than anything else. When he tells them to beware false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there are ravening wolves, you shall know them by their fruits. Please know that. He didn't say you'd know them by the message that they teach. He said you'd know them by the fruits. In other words, their lifestyle. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Folks, have you noticed that nobody has ever been caused to stumble by somebody that lives right? Of all the scandals in the body of Christ and this great minister fell and all this kind of stuff, it's all because of wrong living. It's not because somebody taught the wrong thing and they got caught. It's because they didn't live up to what they taught. We need to be willing to apply spiritual and scriptural principles to judge somebody's life. That doesn't mean you have to sit in judgment of them as an individual. The Bible tells us not to do that, but you certainly should know somebody's life before you start listening to what they say. And if you don't know anything about their life, then find out about their life. There's so many times people come to me and say, oh, Pastor Mike, did you hear what so-and-so said? And I think, well, no, and I don't care because I know so-and-so. Of course, I never say that. I just say, no, I haven't heard that. Oh, that's great. But that's what Jesus said. Jesus said you'd know people by their lifestyle. Now, folks, if there's one thing under attack in the modern-day church, it's lifestyle. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings forth good fruit is hewn down, or brings not forth, excuse me, good fruit, is hewn or cut down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them, them being the false prophets. Now Jesus says on the heels of talking about Beware, being wary of false prophets and so forth. Notice what he said in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, is he talking about people in his day or in people in our day? He's got to be talking about people in our day. Nobody was calling him Lord, Lord at the time that he spoke these words. This is the beginning of his ministry. All of his disciples aren't even in place. So when he says, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, or saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Please notice that has to mean not everybody that confesses Jesus as Lord is saved. Now we in the church world, the modern church world, we've tried to make it easy for everybody. We've tried to make it so easy that all you have to do is say the magic words. I confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Is that all there is to it? Jesus doesn't seem to agree. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, here's the qualifier on God's end. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have, uh, 
uh, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, and then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now notice what he said. You workers of iniquity, that's um, uh, you that practice lawlessness literally in the original Greek. You that practice lawlessness. What is he talking about, workers of iniquity or those that practice lawlessness? He's talking about a departing from the word. Because doing the will of the Father is doing the word of God. So Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that the ones that know him are the ones that do his word. Well, isn't that the same thing that he wrote, uh, that he said as recorded in John's gospel? He said, he that loves me will keep my words or obey my words. Yeah. But now notice what he's saying. He's saying in our day, there are three things that you cannot judge and determine whether or not somebody is right with God. Number one is the message. Did we not prophesy in that name? Number two is their, their opposition to the devil. And in your name did we not cast out devils? And third, wonderful works. Did we do wonderful works in your name? What are considered by the world to be the wonderful works of the church? There's one thing that jumps out to me, and that's the attitude toward the poor. So there's three things that are identified by Jesus that you can't tell the church for by. Not the message. Can't tell them by their opposition to the devil. And you can't tell the church by its position toward the poor. Are you out there? I realize that I'm getting you to think this morning in ways that you probably haven't thought before. But notice Jesus said that it comes down to one and only one thing, and that is keeping the word, doing the word of God. The Bible talks about, and Jesus said this himself, he said, talking about the last days he said take heed that no man deceive you now he said this to his disciples people that have heard him teach for three years he said be careful that you don't be deceived what is deception deception is when somebody thinks they're on the side of god and they're not deception is when somebody thinks they're in the truth operating according to the truth but they're not the problem with deception is you don't know you're being deceived Very few people take a position that, okay, well, here's the word of God that says this is true, but I'm going to take an opposite position and make that okay with God. Nobody really does that. They come up with reasons why they think that whatever they're saying or whatever their position that they're taking that is contrary to the word is okay. And they're deceived into thinking that because they're doing something good, that it's okay. That's the position of a lot of the church where gay marriage is concerned. Well, it's not right to stand in the way of two people in love. Well, God must not know that. Because <laughs> God said it's wrong. Folks, you've got an immigration issue that's taking place that the church is going to be separated over. Because so much of the church is going to take the position, well, we've just got to help everybody. We've just got to take in those that are less fortunate. Well, that's an attitude toward the poor. That's one of the things Jesus says you can't tell the church by. There are some people we should help and other people we shouldn't. 
you can well imagine we could we could sit here and create scenarios where somebody allows someone else into their home because they're poor, because they need help and so forth, and that person destroys their family. Was that the will of God? Of course not. What was it? It was foolishness. It was a lack of wisdom on the part of the people in charge. Got the same thing happening with the country. Got the same thing happening with churches. Folks, the answer is not always do good unto others in the way that the world says that we're supposed to. I remember a story that Brother Hagin told about a, a pastor friend of his that uh, he had, uh, I think it was five brothers. And uh, the mother was uh, elderly and all the children were grown and so forth. And so um, the mother had a stroke and, and the, the friend of Brother Hagin's, which was a minister, he's a pastor, said they had a family meeting. What are we going to do with mom? And he said, well, look, I, I think what we ought to do with mom is put her in a nursing home where she could get care. She could have care around the clock. Well, the other four brothers and their wives, none of them, uh, well, none of them were in the ministry. I don't know if any other rest of them were saved. But they all rose up and said, no way, we cannot do that to mom. It wouldn't be right for us to put mom in a nursing home. Well, what was their solution? For the pastor to take care of them. (laughs) Because the world always knows what the church ought to do. You realize that, don't you? The world knows exactly what the church ought to do. Now, we may be struggling to figure it out for ourselves, but the world already knows. But that's one of the things Jesus said you couldn't tell the church by. Did we prophesy in your name? I didn't know you. I don't care what your message was. I didn't know you. Did we cast out devils? Weren't we opposed to the devil? In your name? Jesus said, I didn't know you. Yeah, but didn't we do wonderful works? The message translation of this, or paraphrase, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase. But the message Bible says this. It says, our God-centered works were the talk of the town. Jesus said, I didn't know you. Now, this word many, Jesus said many will appear in the last days and say this. He didn't say there'll be a couple here and there. He said many. Let me read it to you again in verse 22. Many will say to me, again, the message translation or paraphrase, the message Bible translates this as thousands will come to me. I don't think that's inaccurate. Many will say unto me in that day. Many will say unto me in that day. Many will say unto me in that day. Now, the day he's talking about is the end when we stand before him. He said this is going to be a real common theme. Paul talks about a falling way of the church. He said, many will depart from the faith. The Spirit speaks expressly. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think it is. Now, the Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. He goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it is, to talk about the condition of men. Men will wax worse and worse. One of the things that he identifies as the condition of mankind Man in general, I think we have to assume that this is mankind in general, in the last days, just before Jesus' return, is that they'll have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. What does that mean? It means they'll look like Christians. They'll look like Christians. They'll be prophesying in his name. They'll be opposed to the devil in the name of Jesus. They'll be doing many wonderful works. 
but they deny the power thereof. Now, how do you deny the power of God? Well, we might think in a specific sense and say, well, some churches say that the gifts of the Spirit have been done away with, that the Holy Ghost doesn't fill people today and stuff like that. Well, okay, that may be true. That may be a part of it. But remember what Paul said about the power of God in Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the word of God, it is the power of God unto salvation. So if somebody's denying the power of God, it means they're denying the word. The Holy Ghost is not going to use two definitions for the same thing. To deny the power of God, to have a form of godliness, but deny the power of God means they're going to look Christian. They're going to look like through their good works or whatever. They're going to look like they're on God's side, but they've denied the word. They've denied the word. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying here? Not everybody that professes or says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my father. That's doing the word. Turn with me over to Matthew, or uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going to, or the Bible is going to tell us of an encounter that Jesus had with a man that he loved. That Jesus loved. Let's start in verse 17. It says, and when he, Jesus, was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked, asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way and sell whatsoever thou have and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the, the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Then Jesus starts talking about rich men and the position of rich men and the kingdom of God and so forth. We'll get to that in a little bit. But let me, let me point some things out to you. When we read this story, there's a certain mindset that it seems that, uh, that kind of jumps up at, at all of us. Here's a rich young ruler who's done things right all of his life, according to his own testimony. He must have been telling the truth because it says Jesus' response was to love him or that he loved him. So we kind of think of it like this. If we put this in a modern-day setting, here's a guy that shows up in his Ferrari. He's dressed real nice. Comes to where Jesus is and says, Jesus, I'm interested in being saved. Jesus tells him, well, you're going to have to do something about your money. And the guy's position is, well, I'm not interested in that. So he goes away sad. We see this guy as kind of an arrogant, puffed-up fellow that, that refuses to hear what Jesus is saying. But, folks, I want you to, to refer back to the first part of the story. It says that Jesus is going on his way, and this guy comes running to him and kneels down. Now, I've been pastoring for almost 30 years. I've never yet had anybody run up to me and kneel down and say, I need to get saved. Now, granted, it's me and not Jesus. I get that. But have you ever seen or heard of that being the case with anybody? This is not some arrogant guy. He has some kind of status because of his wealth. We would have to assume that. But he doesn't let dignity keep him from 
making an open show. He's running to Jesus. Slides in on his knees to where Jesus is and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His heart's in the right place. He wants the right thing. It's always amazed me that Jesus stopped and said, What are you calling me good for? There's got to be something about the way the man says good master that gets Jesus' attention because otherwise Jesus would recognize the guy's heart and say, well, you've come to the right place. Blessed art thou, young man, for having a heart for God. He didn't say any of that stuff to him. He says, what are you calling me good for? What are you calling me good for? There is none good but that one is God. God is the only source of goodness. Now, that's hard for me in my religious thinking to accept. Jesus is not saying that he's not good. He's saying his source of goodness is always God. You remember Jesus said of himself, I only say the things that my father says, or I hear my father say, I only do the things that I see my father do. He's saying the source of my words, the source of my life, the source of my actions is, is, uh, is God. Because it's God and only God that's good. That means there's other things that look good that aren't God. Has to be. There are a lot of things that look good that are so far away from God, it's not even funny. And most Christians aren't taken in by things that are bad. They don't commit themselves to things that are bad. They commit themselves to things that are good that aren't God. The things that rob your time are not the good things that God wants you to do. The things that rob your time are the good things that you've decided to do that God never told you to do. So Jesus said, what are you calling me good for? There's nobody good but God. And then he answers his question. He said, if you're interested in eternal life, he points him right back to the word. Now Jesus quotes six of the Ten Commandments. The six that have to do with human interaction. He leaves out the ones that have to do with the heart toward God. And the young man answers and says, Master... All these I have observed from my youth. Folks, I would submit to you that's probably the reason he's rich. He's been a doer of the word up to this point. At least to, the, to a, a certain degree. Then Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, One thing that thou lackest. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not take the guy and lift him up. As far as we know, he's still kneeling down. He doesn't take him by the hand, lift him up, and put his arm around him and say, Boy, I really like you. Now, I would submit to you right now that this guy would make a good church member. He's the kind of guy you want in his church because he doesn't commit adultery. He doesn't kill. He doesn't steal. He doesn't bear false witness. He defrauds not. And he honors his father and mother. I want a church full of people like that. Hope I have one. Don't worry, we won't examine too closely. But folks, the point is very simply this. He's a good guy. And Jesus does not say, enter thou into the kingdom of God. You've got a problem in your life, but we'll just let you grow and work that out. 
he warns him about the one thing that's going to get in the way between, get in the way of his relationship with God. It's the one thing that's kept him out of a relationship with God so far. It's the one thing that will keep him out of a relationship with God as he goes further. And that is, he says, one thing you lack. There's one thing you've got to deal with. That one thing is keeping God from being first and foremost in your life. That one thing is keeping you from being a doer of the word where the other four commandments are concerned. And that's the position that money holds in your life. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. I want you to think this through real carefully. What is this guy's problem? I used to say his problem is not that he has money. His problem is that he doesn't have treasure in heaven because that's what Jesus is trying to get him to have. Sell what you have and give to the poor that you might have treasure in heaven. I used to say that his problem is that he doesn't have treasure in heaven, but he's got a bigger problem than that. You know what his problem is? His problem is he doesn't accept what Jesus says as being the word of God. His problem is the same problem that Eve had in the Garden of Eden. She didn't take the commandment, don't don't look or don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She evaluated that according to what the devil spoke to her through the serpent. The serpent said, oh, you won't die. God knows that the day you eat thereof, you'll be like him. So what does she do? She evaluates. She judges it. She tries to figure it out. She reasons it out. She says, well, God said, uh, well, she even went further. She said, God said, we're not even supposed to touch it. God didn't say that. What God said is don't eat of it. And she takes what the devil says and says, hmm, I haven't thought of it like that. Well, let's see, what what will we do? Well, the devil might be right. Of course, he's not the devil. He's a serpent. He looks really good. He might be right. So we'll try that. And folks, that is the biggest problem in the body of Christ today. That people are judging based on their own thinking, based on their own understanding, based on their own desires. Is the word of God going to be true for me in this case? Oh, I'm saved. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm saved. I made Jesus the Lord of my life. But when it comes to acting on the word of God, nah. We have to judge these things. We have to evaluate it for ourselves. Folks, if God said it, there is no evaluation to be done. And you've got that very thing happening in the body of Christ today. You've got the very same thing happening. You've got Christians. I saw, um, well, Shaney posted a video on uh, her Facebook while we were on vacation. It's this group of idiots, (laughs) young people saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm not judgmental. I'm a Christian, but I'm gay. I'm a Christian, but I'm not this, that, and the other. It basically is, comes down to, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that word of God stuff. Now, what in the world do you think? Remember, I haven't changed subjects here. I've gone down a little bit of a trail here, but I haven't changed subjects. Since the Bible talks about the signs of the times, and one of the signs of the times is many shall depart from the faith. What do you think Christians are going to depart to? Do you think they're going to say, well, I used to believe in Jesus and I used to believe in the work of the cross, but now I see the devil over here and I've decided I want to go after him. What Christian is going to do that? But they may say, well, I used to be a stickler for the word and I used to go to churches that said, here's what the word says and the word of God is true. But you know, I've got Christian friends that are gay and they love God just as much as I do. So maybe it's okay. Maybe God did make them gay. 
I've got a Christian friend that has a gay lover, and they really love them, love one another. In fact, they're involved in the music ministry at the church. So maybe that's okay. What do you think will turn people away? What do you think will cause people to depart from the faith? The same evaluation that the rich young ruler did that Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They think it out and come up with their own idea. If the rich young ruler really understood that Jesus is the Son of God, now you decide for yourself why he runs up to him and kneels down before him. You decide for yourself what he means when he says, Good Master. I have a feeling that Jesus already knew where the guy's heart was, and that's why he calls him on, uh, calls the rich young ruler on calling him good. You decide for yourself. But if this guy really believed Jesus was the Son of God, if he really believed that he was God in the flesh, what is there for him to be sad about? Now, let me show you another end of this. If this happened in a modern day setting, Here's how it would go. The rich young ruler would come up, and if the Lord spoke to somebody, spoke to a modern-day minister to say, tell him he's got one thing that he's got to deal with. That's his attitude toward money. Tell him to sell what he has, give to the poor, and then he'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Please notice what Jesus is offering him. He's offering him a disciple position. He's offering him a disciple position. Jesus knew ahead of time that he wasn't going to take it, so he wasn't in danger of having 13. <laughs> Messing up prophecy, you know. But he offers him a spot next to him. Look at what the guy turned down because he evaluated the word of God to be untrue or not for him. But if it happened today, ministers would put their arms around him and said, Now look, fella. He said, I, I really like you. I can see you've got a heart for God. I need to talk to you about destiny. I need to talk to you about dreaming big. Because see, there's a scripture. It's in Proverbs. Jesus could have told him this. It's in Proverbs. If you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord and the Lord will repay you. So God wants you to give what you have to the poor. But don't worry. It's a good business investment. You'll get it back and even more. Modern day church would have made a place for this guy. Jesus didn't. Jesus said, there's something you got to deal with. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's something you're going to have to deal with. That's your attitude toward money. Now, that attitude toward money could be anything. Could be boyfriend, could be girlfriend. Could be business, could be career. Could be lifestyle could be sexual orientation, could be anything for anybody. But anything, please notice this is the principle, anything that gets in between you and God as far as your relationship with him is concerned is something that Jesus says, cut it off before you come in. Not try to grow through it. Is that the way the modern day church operates? I don't see too much of that. I see the modern day church trying to make it so easy for people that it turns out being in many cases a cheap gospel. 
Now, I'm not questioning other people's salvation. That's not up to me to do. But I am asking this of the modern-day church. What kind of foundation do we have where the Word of God is God's Word in our lives? That's what it comes down to. Now, the disciples are shocked. They're shocked. We'll start in verse 22 again. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had many possessions. And Jesus looked around about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? He didn't say it's impossible. He said it's hard. And the disciples patted themselves on the back and said, Yeah, they need to be broke like us. Notice the disciples said, or it says of the disciples, and the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, How hard, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches. Now he's going to qualify it. It's not the money, it's your trust. How hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they, the disciples, were astonished. They were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Why are they so astonished? Because rich is the blessing of Abraham. It seems to them that Jesus is saying, well, God promised Abraham and his seed that he'd make them rich. But you can't be rich and come into the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying you can't trust in your riches. Why? Because your trust in those riches will get in between you and your relationship with God. It's the one thing everybody has to deal with. That's why tithing is a mandate for the church. People that trust in riches don't tithe. That may not be the only reason somebody doesn't tithe. But people that trust in their riches don't tithe. Because tithe means you have to give up something that you can see, money that you can see, for a benefit that you can't yet see. And God doesn't pay up by the end of the week. Folks, if, if, if God paid up within a 24 or 48-hour period, everybody would be tithers. In fact, Jesus goes further and talks to these guys. They're astonished out of measure now. And Jesus, looking around uh, upon them, said, With men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. In other words, it's possible to be rich and serve God. But it's with God that that happens. It's not on your own. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. They don't have to believe for those. Those will come anyway. With persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Many that are first shall be last and the last first. Can I ask you a question? Why did Jesus not tell the rich young ruler verse 30 as soon as he spoke verse 21? One thing thou lackest. Go your way and sell, what you, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up the cross and follow me. For he that re, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the world to come eternal life. 
Isn't that what the guy came for to begin with was eternal life? Why doesn't Jesus say, I want you to give what you have to the poor. Sell what you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. But don't worry, there's a hundredfold return for doing that. See, that's what the modern day church would do. Modern day church tries to get people in on the promises or the blessings. Jesus didn't. Jesus, on the day that Peter and John had the biggest fishing day in their business, business biggest business day of their lives, Boat sinking catches a fish. Said, follow me. He didn't say, follow me and I'll give you a better life. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make sure you're provided for. He didn't say, follow me and anything other than I'll make you fishers and men. What's the result of this in the modern day church? We got a lot of people that are using God for blessings. What does it come down to? It comes down to one and only one thing, and that is accepting God's word to be the word of God and therefore the foundation for our lives. Turn back with me. We started in Matthew chapter 7. Turn back there and we'll we'll quit with this. Matthew chapter 7. We'll reread some scriptures. I'll pick up again in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus makes it as plain as you can make it. The one that enters into heaven is the one that does the will of God. He's talking about being a doer of the word. Being a doer of the word. (laughs) Folks, being a doer of the word is the only thing that will keep you from departing from the faith in the last days. Because the church hadn't even started to become started to come under pressure that it's going to have. You may look at this thing that happened in Kentucky where this clerk went, Christian lady went to jail for refusing to sign gay marriage certificates or whatever. That's not even on the radar screen of what the church is going to have to deal with. You're going to have opportunities, whether public or private. You're going to have opportunities to stand up for what's true or turn away. It's coming. You might as well settle in. You can believe all you want to. You can pray all you want to. This stuff is coming. That's my problem with what some people are trying to do, Christian people are trying to do with the, the, on the political scene. What the Bible said will happen, will happen. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care who you think you elect. It's not going to be solved politically. So many people are are talking about how the church, the body of Christ needs to rise up. We need to get involved in this next election. We need to elect the right people. If you did elect who you think is the right people, the same stuff the Bible says is going to happen is going to happen. God didn't say this, thus it shall be in the last days unless you get your right person in office. Now, I don't think there's a chance in the world for the right person getting in office. So don't get me wrong on that. Look for the worst person in the group. That's probably your next candidate. You think I'm kidding. 
I could tell you some things by the Holy Ghost, but I won't. Anyway, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Again, the workers of iniquity is those that practice lawlessness, meaning those that refuse to let the word of God be the foundation for their life. Therefore, verse 24, notice the context that Jesus said this. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Everybody say, doeth them. I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not. In other words, they evaluate whether or not we want to act on the word in our lives. They judge. Whether they know they're doing it or not, they judge the word of God to not be God's word. They come up with a better idea. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And we talk about the storms of life coming to everybody. We talk about overcoming the, the difficulties and the challenges and the attacks of the devil and all that kind of stuff and that's true. Every bit of it's true. But the context that Jesus said about this was being a doer of the word so that you could enter into heaven, so that you could stand strong. Standing upon a rock does not just mean to be able to stand in faith against sickness or stand in faith against poverty or stand in faith against something that tries to steal your peace or an attack on the job. Or uh, All of those things are true, but that's not the context that he's talking about. He's talking about founded on a rock means not depart from the faith, not be pulled away, not be somebody that has a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, like in the last days. Now, I can't tell you what percentage of the church is going to fall into that category. But it might be most of them. It could very well be the majority. And the more laws that are passed, the more pressure that's put on the church, the more and more of the church, the body of Christ, that might be chipped away from the edges. You got church people arguing now whether or not this uh, clerk in Kentucky did the right thing. Well, it's the law of the land. Christians are standing up saying, well, it's the law of the land. She should have obeyed the law of the land. Well, should she? Is that the case? I'm not telling you what she should or shouldn't do. I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do. But these are questions that are going to have to be asked and answered. These are things you're going to have to deal with somewhere along the way. The law of the land used to be slavery. Was that right? But it's the law of the land. People get quiet on that one, don't they? Folks, the Supreme Court don't make, does not make the law of the land. That's why governing against the will of the people is such an important issue in these last days. Our Constitution is set up so that laws are enacted one and only one way, and that's through Congress. You look at the top of the Supreme Court rulings, you'll find that it says the opinion of the Supreme Court. That's what gay marriage is. It's the opinion of the Supreme Court. You decide for yourself what you're going to live by. I'm going to live by the word. I'll never perform a gay marriage. None of our staff will either. If they do, then they won't be part of our staff. 
Because we're going to live by the word. Because it's the only thing that will keep you on solid ground. It's the only thing that will create a foundation for you that you can't be stumbled, that you won't stumble off of. It's the only thing that there is. And these are all signs of Jesus coming. Now, some people hear things like this and they think, oh, my goodness, what a terrible time to live. Oh, contraire. What a wonderful time to live. Because when the devil raises up his head, God shows up big. And the Bible says that Jesus is coming back for a glorious church, not a wimpy group of Christians. Not a mealy mouth group of people that don't know what they believe. He says he's coming back for a glorious church. Now, there'll be those, those others too. But he's coming back for the glorious church. A glorious church is a church where the glory of God is manifested and seen. That means the power of God in demonstration. Well, who is God going to demonstrate his power for? The person that's arguing over gay marriage? Or the person that's standing up saying, I don't have an opinion. I have the word of God. That should be our position. See, the rich young ruler had an opinion. Eve had an opinion. Jesus said the person that will never be moved is the person that has the word of God. And because he recognizes it as such, as God's word, he lives by it. And it creates a foundation, a solid foundation that nothing can ever move him off of. Thank God for his word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. So what should we do? Well, remember Jesus said, watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. There's an escape for the church, for the doers of the word. There's an escape. Let's be accounted worthy of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the times and the seasons that we live in. Lord, what a privilege it is for us to have been chosen, handpicked by you to live in these last days. We thank you, Father, that the truth of your word, the solid foundation that your word, of, that your word has created in our lives will hold us steady in the storms of life. Let us be counted among those that are worthy of the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be among those that stand straight and tall, fixed and unmovable to do what the Word of God says, to apply it in our lives. No matter what public pressure there is, no matter what the laws of the land may say, that we are people and that we become people. We live up to be a people that are governed by you. We thank you for your hand of protection upon us as we put your word first. Father, if it comes down to civil disobedience, if it comes down to the the situations where we have to choose you over the laws of the land, we put our trust in you, Father. We won't do it with an arrogant or a brash attitude, with any sense of unloving toward anybody but we choose to love you more than the things of this world. Thank you, Father, 
for your hand that's upon us, for your power that's available to us. In the name of Jesus, this sustains us. Amen. Amen. Amen.